0: Morning, we are in Mark chapter 7, so let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Continuing on uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Actually, we're going to backtrack to verse 53 of chapter 6. Some verses, really not going to teach on them, but it's good to remember the context. Here in Mark, last part of Mark chapter 6, and going into chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples have been at the Sea of Galilee on the northeast side. Jesus performed the miracle of feeding 5,000. He sent the multitudes away. He sent the disciples across the lake in a boat. He went to pray. They were straining at the oars. He came walking to them on the water. Uh, An amazing experience for them, of course. And then he got into the boat, and they traveled. And one of the Gospels says, very quickly, immediately, they came to the other side of the lake. This is where we pick up the story then. I'm just going to read uh, chapter 6, verse 53, and we'll work our way into chapter 7 a little bit, and then we'll have a word of prayer. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole region, surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds, those who were sick, to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So let's stop there. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we don't want to be any, anything close to what these guys were, Lord, in your word. These Pharisees, these scribes who were so enamored with what they created, enamored with their own version of religion and spirituality and supposed godliness, Lord. we We don't want to be close to that, Lord. Save us from that, we pray, God. Teach us your ways. Teach us about true holiness. Teach us about commitment to you and relationship with you and closeness with you and fellowship with you, Lord. Teach us all those things that we can have a life that is changed by you, Lord. Not by rules, but by you, the living God. So we commit this time to you, Lord. Teach us your ways, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of chapter 6, we see some people that welcome Jesus wonderfully. They're so excited that he's there. They look to him. They're wanting to receive blessings from him, and they do. And so the Lord honors their faith, even in the manner of the woman who touched the hem of his garment. These people come. uh, They're bringing the sick. They're just touching the hem of his garment And God is honoring their faith, as as unusual of a display of faith as that is. he, He is honoring their faith. But we see another group of people that come, and their attitudes about Jesus, and their attitudes about God, and their actions regarding their faith are all wrong. They're completely wrong. They're rooted in what is right, but they have morphed into what is wrong. And so often, guys, that happens. And the title of this message is "When Traditions Go Wrong." And so many things that we have in our lives uh, with government, with family gatherings, with you know how you, how you clean your house, whatever the case may be, uh, I, I read a, a silly little thing. Um, I guess when you cook a roast, is it, I don't cook, I cook scrambled eggs. Uh, I'm really good at scrambled eggs, in case it is with the microwave, but the microwave is broken, so I'm actually having to use a pan right now. It's pretty tedious, I'll tell you. Is it a roast or a ham, you cut the end off of it? Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody ever heard of that? Anyway, I guess it, in some generation, somewhere in the world, they would cut the end off the roast. And so the daughter watched the mom do it, and the, the granddaughter watched the, the, you know, the, the daughter do it. And to generations, they would cut the end off the roast or off the ham before they cooked it. And finally said, they said, well, why did Grandma do that? Well, she said, because it wouldn't fit in the pan. <laughs> I thought it was some secret you know, way of cooking. And so many things like that in our lives can, we just develop these habits and these traditions and they have, there's really no reason for them and they have nothing to do with truth. And so we see a group here, they're called the scribes, they're called the Pharisees, they have attitudes and actions of self-righteousness. Whereas the other people came to receive from Jesus, these guys come condemning Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. The Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. So the leaders of the people are supposed to be shepherding the nation, but as Jesus looked at the people, he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. The, people were, the leaders were not taking care of the people. As the leaders of the religious nation, it was a civil-religious combination. Government and religion were together together. These guys were supposed to be watching out for false messiahs and false teachers, and so it was appropriate that they were there checking Jesus out, but they came with a predetermined uh, idea and decision regarding him. And so Jesus, in their, really, before them, didn't stand a chance. Their self-righteousness caused them to criticize anyone that didn't believe like them. They were rigid in their ways. They were cutting off the end of the ham and not knowing why. But if you didn't cut off the end of the ham, boy, you were in big trouble. Or the end of the roast? You guys go home and Google it. I don't know, but you catch my drift because you all laughed, okay? They, they, were, they were so dead set on their traditions. It was their job to come and investigate. Is this a false messiah? And So that was good. That part of it was good. But they came with their mind made up because of the things they had developed themselves. Look at their views of righteousness. Once again, verses 2 and 4. When they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. So I'm going to call these guys legalists, I'm going to call them religionists, traditionalists, a lot of different names that we can give to these guys. They come and see Jesus and his disciples not doing something that they thought everybody should be doing. And they, they were fault finders because of that. Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders, Notice that word tradition. We're going to see that word tradition pop up here a lot. And in this passage, it's not good. Verse 4. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things, so not just the washing of hands, but many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and even their furniture. And so they were steeped in tradition man-made tradition that had nothing to do with true godliness. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson here. This tradition started and was rooted in the Bible. And I want you to just follow along with me. The idea of washing hands as an act of holiness is found in the book of Exodus. Now, uh, the, the children of Israel were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. God did 10 miracles, 10 miraculous works to get them released from Egypt They went wandering through the desert for 40 years because of unbelief, but they were headed to the Promised Land. But during that desert wilderness wandering, God was still initiating worship with them. And so eventually when they get to Jerusalem, they're going to build the temple, and there they're going to offer sacrifices for their sins. But while they're traveling, a solid building isn't practical, and so they had a tent, and they had had a portable tabernacle. And the priests, Aaron and his sons, were to be the priesthood forever. Their their ministry was called the Aaronic Priesthood. And God said, before you come before me, I want you to clean up. I want you to bathe. God was developing in them the awareness that God is holy and you can't just come strolling up to him any old way that you want. That's what he's developing in them. There's nothing... Uh, you know washing your hands with soap doesn't make you a more holy person but if you're obeying the Lord knowing that before I go to the Lord he said I need to do this it's a spiritual cleansing it's an awareness it's a reverence for God and so in those early days God was still and still wants us to understand that we need to have reverence for him and so we read in the book of Exodus here follow along if you would chapter 30 verses 17 to 21 then the Lord spoke to Moses saying you shall also make a laver of bronze it's a big wash tub actually with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. Notice, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet from it. Every time they'd go before the Lord to burn incense or to, to, re, to keep the, the candle, uh, the lampstand going or bring offerings to the Lord, they always had to come with a mindfulness of, I can't just come strolling up any old way that I want to the Lord. I need to come with reverence and remember that He's holy and that He's commanded us to do this. Verse 20, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. How serious do you think the Lord was about this? Is it that God can't stand dirty, physically dirty hands? No. He doesn't want us to have spiritually dirty hearts. And so God was saying, before you come to me, you need to prepare yourself. And this is the way that I'm going to have you prepare yourself. I want you to stop, I want you to wash your hands and your feet. Guys, when they're doing that, they're thinking about, I'm coming before a holy God. I can't just come to him willy-nilly, as it were. Verse 21, So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. Notice, and it shall be a statute forever to them. To who? To him and his descendants throughout their generations. They were the only ones that could come before the Lord in this way as priests. And so this rule, this commandment was given just to them. Before they come before the Lord, wash your hands, wash your feet. Now to the general population in Leviticus 15, look at number 3 there, the general population were often given rules for ceremonial washing of hands and utensils and baths even after some sinful or unclean occurrence happened in their lives. Something sinful or that would render them ceremonially unclean, then they had to go and kind of clean up afterwards. The priests were called to clean up beforehand. The people were called, if you defile yourself, it's a whole other study, not going to get into it. I, I want you to be mindful that some unclean, some sinful thing has come into your life and I want you to, to cleanse yourself. And what's God doing with them? He's, he's developing in them a sense of repentance and a sense of, before I, before I come to the Lord, I have to come with reverence. I have to come with mindfulness. I can't just live any way that I want. And come to Him and think that it's okay, guys. There's a principle there. We're not going to camp out on it too long. But we need to adopt not washing of hands and feet and baths and couches and things. But we need to come even to church, even be, anytime you're gathering with God's people. Before when you get up in the morning, you need to come reverentially to the Lord. And reverentially doesn't mean like this. Oh, well, I'm holy. I have the joy of the Lord. You know, it's, like, it's not somber. It's holy. It's saying, God saved me. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I'm set apart for his purposes. Lord, you're a most holy God. I come into this place and I want to worship you and I want to sing of you and I want to speak of you and I want to pray to you. And You are a most holy God. You don't just kind of come in like, eh, whatever, you know. It's not like that. There needs to be a mindfulness in our lives. And so for the Aaronic priesthood, before they would come to the Lord, for the general population, if there was a need to cleanse after some kind of sin or unclean thing. Now look at this quote by David Gusick. He speaks here of the washing that the Pharisees and the scribes did. Regarding this washing, special stone vessels of water were kept because ordinary water might be unclean. To wash your hands in a special way, as it says in our verse, they wash your hands in a special way. To wash your hands in a special way, you started by taking at least enough of this water to fill one and a half eggshells. These things have to be very precise. You probably if you did a word search on, in your Bible and looked up one and a half eggshells, you wouldn't find it anywhere. But somewhere along the line, somebody said, that's the right amount of water. You start to see the details that are given to non-biblical, extra-biblical things. Then you pour the water over your hands, starting at the fingers and running down towards your wrist. So you guys have to watch... Up here, I'm going to get away from the notes for a minute. They would wash like this. They'd pour the hand, water over the fingers like this, palms up, and with your fist you would do this, and with your fist you would do this, and the water would run down your wrists, but now that water is dirty. So now you have to wash your hands like this and have that water run off so it's clean because the hand is clean, so there was a special way that you had to do it. And if you didn't do it that way, you had to do it over again. It wasn't considered being ceremonially clean. A really strict Jew would do this not only before a meal... But also between each course. So before hors d'oeuvres, after hors d'oeuvres you have the salad, wash again, and soup, have salad, main course, wash again, dessert, wash again, afterwards before you get a bit wash again. In their minds, this is making them more holy. It started off with the priests just needing to do it before they would go into the presence of the Lord, and it morphed into you know There might have been some of them that were washing their hands between every bite. I don't know. But it just got worse and worse and worse and more complicated. Now, Now look at this. The rabbis were deadly serious about this. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. That's extreme, isn't it? What God meant as something really good, before you come before me into my tabernacle, priest, I want you to have a mindfulness of my holiness. Now they're saying if you eat bread with unwashed hands, it's like eating manure or something. Look how far away it had gotten. Now it was all about the hands and the bread. It wasn't about coming before the Lord with a pure heart anymore. Continuing on, one rabbi who once failed to perform the ritual washing was excommunicated. I mean, we could make up something here. You know, when you when you come into Cornerstone on Sunday mornings, you have to go, oh, just some little thing, or oh, whatever little sign you want. You know, and somebody comes in and they don't do this low enough. I'm sorry, you're out of the church, huh? You didn't you didn't do that low enough, or you didn't flash the gang sign cool enough. You're out of the church. Another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing cleansing instead of drinking, nearly dying of thirst. He was regarded as a great hero for this sacrifice and they would even take full baths when returning from town Imagine going to the swap meet, you're a Jewish leader, going to the swap meet, you're walking around like this, you're pulling your robes in, lest you bump up against or walk by a Gentile and their their clothes gets on your clothes. You'd come back from the swap meet and you'd have to bathe fully and, and bathe your clothes and put on a new change of clothes because you might have touched something that a Gentile touched. That wasn't what God intended. It started off good and it morphed into something terrible. That these leaders took the basic commandments of God, morphed them into burdensome commandments from men and caused them to supersede the word of God. Now they're paying attention on the traditions and they're not paying attention to the word of God. Uh, a commentator named Trapp says this near the bottom of page one. The Jews have several ordinary sayings that show in what esteem they had these traditions. So they started, set as- they started setting aside the written word of God. And they started developing their own oral tradition or their oral laws. So they had the written word, then they had the spoken word. And eventually, in their minds, the spoken word became more important than the written word. The written word was what God wrote. The spoken word was what they came up with. Now notice what Trapp says. This this was the mindset of the day, guys. If the scribes say our right hand is our left and our left hand is our right, we are to believe them. I'm not on a campaign against the Roman Catholic Church, but the Pope has that kind of power too, doesn't he? If he says something, even if it contradicts Scripture, depending on the the, the spiritual, political climate, who the Pope is, this kind of thing. He can just, you know... There are other organizations, I believe the the Watchtower Society, that says, yeah, we have the Word of God, but we also have the prophets, and if they speak something, it's extra-biblical revelation. And so oral tradition or oral spoken law uh, supersedes the written Word of God in many religious circles. And that's what was happening here. Now finally, one Jewish rabbi said, he who sins... He, excuse me, he sins as much as who eats with unwashed hands as he that lies with a harlot. <laughs> How far it had gotten from, I want my priest to come before me and remember that I'm holy. Almost to the point of, you might as well have cheated on your wife, buddy. You didn't wash your hands before you ate that piece of bread. How far is that removed? It started off... From the Word of God and it morphed and it morphed and it morphed and it morphed until it wasn't anything close to God's intention at all. How did traditions develop? Bottom of page one. David Gusick says this, an example of so called spiritual logic, and this is what we do. This is what churches and religious organizations often do. This is the kind of thinking. If we start back with Exodus and back with Leviticus, doesn't God want us to honor him in everything we do? Yes or no? Yes, of course he does. Didn't God command the priest to wash their hands before serving him? Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Shouldn't every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Same heart intention? Absolutely. But we read there, here in, in Exodus, it shall be a statute forever to them. It was a commandment for them. It wasn't a commandment for the people. It was a commandment for them. They could have the same devotion without having to do the same thing because God didn't command the general population to do the same thing. But this is where we can start using our, our so-called spiritual logic and develop things that are not biblical at all. Shouldn't every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Isn't every meal sacred to God? Shouldn't we take every opportunity and make ourselves pure before the Lord? I mean, you could walk around with a portable shower, with a little window right here. It's like I'm just constantly cleaning myself before the Lord. I mean, it's how far does it go? It just becomes ridiculous. Not only that, guys, it becomes burdensome. Not only that, you guys, it becomes an opportunity to condemn others for not thinking like you, for not acting like you. And look at Jesus' teaching regarding this verses 6 to 13. Jesus didn't pull any punches with these guys. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. That's a big one, isn't it? I'm glad somebody kind of, yeah. They reject the commandment of God to keep the tradition. For Moses said, verse 10, "...honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man receives his father and mother, if a man says to his father and mother, excuse me, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, dedicated to the temple." And you no longer let him do anything for his father and his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Jesus called them hypocrites. He didn't hold back. He explained their religious hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrite is often misused. Um, we often hear people don't want to come to church because it's full the hypocrites. Okay, I, you know, all right. I'm, I need to... Somebody cast out the demon of sarcasm from me. <laughs> because it's full of hypocrites. Okay. You know, I'm just so tired of hearing that. There's, there's hypocrites everywhere. There's hypocrites at basketball games. I mean, come on, you know. You're secretly a, a you know, I don't know, a Laker fan, but you wear a, a dub jersey. Hypocrite, you know. A hypocrite is a play actor. In the Greek dramas, a hypocrite would put a, a mask in front of their face and pretend to be something that they're not. They were making the world think that they were something when in reality they were something else. So to be a hypocrite, you have to be intentional about it. If anybody's here pretending to be a Christian, but you're not, then you're, you're, you're being hip, hypocritical. But if you're here as a Christian, you're saying, man, I don't always do what I should and sometimes I fail. That's not being a hypocrite, that's just being a human. It's just being a person. So hypocrites are pretenders. So these guys pretended to love God, but in reality, guys, they love their traditions. They loved their religion more than they loved their God. And their traditions were like you know, 20th degree emanations from the real thing. They had departed so far. Not only did they give lip service to God, but their hearts were far from God. Their worship of God was empty. And there's a lot of what is called worship in the church today, and a great deal is made of it in many churches, as it should be. But there are many who are more on style of music and uh, the stage setting and all these kinds of things and the energy coming off of the stage and all of that. And it's worship and everybody's excited or, or everybody's super somber singing the hymns or very, very excited because it's a concert-like atmosphere and all of that and the people are excited about the music but they go home and they're not, their hearts are not for the Lord. God doesn't receive that worship. What did Jesus say? Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and Truth. So these guys, they looked like they were worshiping, but they loved their religion, and they really didn't love the Lord. They were pretending. The same can be said about many churchgoers in this present day, and unfortunately, may it not be said about us. But we're completely. Uh, it's, it's, the potential is there that we could fail in the same way. Some some churchgoers attend, sing, serve, they give, but their hearts are far from God. Guys, if we are un, unforgiving and unloving. To people, if if somebody has hurt you and you you are purposely unforgiving and you come in here and you think it's all okay because you're attending church, it's not all okay. I'm not talking about struggling to forgive. We all all understand struggling to forgive. If somebody's hurt you, are you willing to forgive? Are, are Are you willing to pray that God would give you a heart to forgive? We need to be in that place. But if you come here thinking... They're dead to me. I will never forgive them. If I see them on the road, I'm going to drive by and do this at them and I will, they're dead to me. But it's okay because I come to church. You're wrong. Not okay. It's wrong. In vain you worship the Lord. So I'm not talking about us having perfect attitudes all the, all the time. I'm talking about us fooling ourselves into thinking that unforgiveness and not loving somebody and and and. I, Uh, immorality impurity abuses stealing all you know all all the numbers of sins if you think it's okay because you're coming here and helping with the kids once in a while, putting some money in the box you're wrong it's hypocrisy that's pretending and you may have even talked yourself into thinking you were okay but you're not and jesus calls us on it doesn't he? he calls us all on it so may it not be so we can be unforgiving and unloving, but we can think we're okay because we attend church, we give money, we serve, we don't smoke or drink alcohol, and we dress and vote conservatively. <laughs> and, and sadly, that seems to be the direction that the church is going in oftentimes. We're holy because of who we voted for for president? Are you kidding me? There's nothing in the Bible about that. It's a tradition. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers, cups, many other things you do. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. I was trying to think of something that would be a modern day example. Look here in verses 8 and 9. There's an example. I, I pasted in here the verses from 1 Peter 3. Peter's talking to Christian women who have unbelieving husbands. And these Christian women want to win their husbands to Christ and they want to be a good example at home. And he's basically telling them the best impact you can make is not by dressing up but by being a godly woman. Nothing wrong with dressing up, nothing wrong with looking nice. But the best impact you can make is to bring the fragrance, the aroma, the perfume of Jesus into your home. And so he writes to these Christian women, and that's, that's the intention behind this verse. Now look at, the, look at the verse. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. He's not saying don't do that. He says don't, don't just do that. Do more than that. It's, it's nice to look nice. We should all try to have some degree of niceness in the way we look, okay? So don't just do that, verse 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So what's he telling Christian women? Don't just dress up thinking you're going to bring your husband to Christ by your looks. Be a godly woman. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. Be, a, be beautiful on the inside and let it, let it come out in the home. That's the intention of that verse. How can we turn that into a tradition? How can we make that? How can we twist that, may I suggest? Peter exhorted women not to depend on outward beauty, but on inward beauty. Instead, a church might read this and adopt a rule that women shouldn't wear makeup or jewelry. Not only that, the new standard for holiness becomes looking as plain as possible. If you dress up, we have uh, potato sacks at the door. (laughs) Now, There was a cult in San Diego in in the 90s that they dressed everybody in robes and shaved everybody's heads so that they would be asexual. They took away their sexuality. uh, And they were waiting for the Hale-Bopp Comet, and if you remember all that, that group. So they equated holiness with looking like an egghead with a robe. (laughs) And so churches can do this. The new standard for holiness can be looking as plain as possible. And then the next step, guys, I want you to see the different emanations. Any woman that comes to church looking beautiful is now accused of being immoral. They disregard the commandment to love one another and replace it with a tradition. So now a a visitor comes and they don't know about this unspoken moral code that everybody in the church has memorized and they're just saying, well, look at her. She's got makeup on. She She has jewelry on. Well, you know what kind of woman she is. And they're just stonewaller and no love, nothing like that. They reject the commandment to love all people, and and because of tradition, they're condemning. There's a hundred different ways that people do this kind of thing. As we go on, hypocrites believe they are right with God by keeping rules. And there are rules that they create. Look at verses 10 to 13. Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. It says that in the book of Exodus. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as Korban, that is, dedicated the temple, and you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. They, 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 they exchange their religious creation for the word of God. And many such things you do. The idea of Korban is this. Okay, the Bible says, uh, obviously, if you're a child living with your parents, you need to obey them. If you're an adult child, you need to honor your parents. In those days, as in these days, many of our aging parents need assistance sometimes. And so we are called to assist them. Let's say you didn't like your aging parents and you're a Jewish person And the the Greek word for the treasury in the temple was korban, spelled with a K. Transliteration, spelled with a K. And so you could say, you know what, I'm so holy that um, 85% of my income I need, but 15% of it is disposable income, I'm giving it to the Lord. I'm so holy, I love God so much, I'm giving it to the temple. I'll hold it in the bank account and make a little bit of interest, but in the principle, I'll give it to the Lord. And somebody would say, isn't your mom and dad starving? I know, I wish I could help them, but I've given it to the Lord some deep religious voice or something like that you know, so, so with Corban, they could get themselves out of taking care of their parents that they maybe they didn't like and they could feign godliness by setting this money aside and saying i'm not going to take care of my parents i've dedicated it to the lord and they're actually violating the commandment by their own tradition and jesus said many such things you do Jesus teaches us here as we come to the close. Um, and if you have any questions, I think there's a number up there. Yeah, you can fire them in and I'll try to answer them. Before I, before I finish here, you know, we need to be asking ourselves the questions, am I doing this in any way? And the real insidious thing about it is that if you're doing it, and you've been doing it for a while, you've, you've, de- you've developed a terrible blind spot. And if you're doing it, how do you know that you're doing it? Ask yourself a couple of questions. In my spiritual experience, can I trace everything that I do back to the scriptures? Is there precedent for it in the scriptures? Secondarily, am I a critical, condemning person when people don't believe what I what I believe? For instance, the, I believe the Bible says that life starts at, at conception. I believe that that babies in the womb are people and deserve to live. Now, Generally speaking, one political party would favor abortion while another one is more pro-life. There are Christians who align themselves with a political party that um, also favors abortion. They may not favor abortion, but they might like other things about that political party, and so they identify themselves in that political camp, and immediately we become condemning because we say, you hate babies, you're a baby killer. Kind of thing. We can be so quick. The value of life, to me, to me, it's it's an it's a done deal, right? But I'm just saying how quickly we can jump to conclusions about people and, and predetermine what we think of them and what they must think about God and all these other things. And so I'm asking you guys, and you have to search your own hearts out here. I'm not going to come up with some list of 100 different things and have you guys check them off and turn them in and we'll grade you and send you a report where you can sit in the church. You know, all you liberals in the back. Yeah, yeah. or you know, you know what I'm saying? Or, or maybe we need liberals in the front. I'm getting my, digging a hole for myself here, huh? Ask yourself these questions. Is what I'm doing and what I embrace rooted in God's word? And is what I'm doing and what I embrace causing me to be a critical person, a condemning person? And if, if those questions aren't answered correctly, there's a chance that you're developing your own traditions and traditions go wrong. And you have to search your own heart. And the chance is, as I said previously, that if you have developed a tradition, you've also developed a blind spot. And we need the Lord, don't we? Amen? We need the Lord desperately to root these things out of us. Because these guys would have chased the disciples of Jesus out of church because they didn't wash their hands the right way. It wasn't about hygiene to them. This had nothing to do with getting rid of germs. This was all about the way you wash your hands determines how much you love God. And it was just ridiculous. So we have to ask ourselves these questions. Jesus very simply here, and let me finish this up. Verse 14, When he had called all the multitude to him, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. See, Jesus wants to take them back to to the clear understanding of God's word. Verse 15, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus is saying it's not the eating and drinking and touching of things that makes a person sinful. It's the heart of a person that makes a person sinful. Washing Gentile germs off your hands doesn't make you holy. And so he was eager to teach the people. Verse 17, And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. I love how Jesus just kind of really... Goes after the ones he loves. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man, from, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Adulteries. We're not going to go down this list. You guys know what these things mean. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy or slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Jesus is saying this. Look at the bottom of page two there. Physical things don't defile us. We eat or drink them and they pass out of us. Even too much alcohol. Now, Please hear me out before you think I'm okay with alcoholism. I'm not. Or drunkenness. No, drunkenness is a sin. But alcohol doesn't defile you. Taking drugs doesn't defile you. The things that you take, eventually you drink enough water and and eat healthy. These things are going to pass out of your body. What's the problem? It's the heart that says, I don't want to deal with life. I'm going to get drunk. I don't want to deal with life. I'm going to uh, use drugs. I don't want to deal with life, I don't want to forgive, I don't want to have to think about it, I'm afraid, I don't want to trust God, I'd rather do things my own way, I'm tired of people pushing me around, I've been pushed around my whole life, I'm going to medicate, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to get high, I'm going to do all these things. It's not the stuff coming in, guys. The reason the stuff's coming in is because of your heart that's going out. It's the heart issue, it's always the heart issue. In no way am I defending any substance abuses or anything. Those things are deadly, they're awful, and everything. But you can get a person sober and they can still have a wicked heart, right? Now they're just a sober sinner. Before they were a drunk sinner, now they're a sober sober sinner. It's the heart issue that needs to change. And so we say this the sinful desires within us, these are the main problems. We don't gain holiness through rule-keeping. We gain holiness and closeness to God through number one. Last two points on the notes. First, you need to be born again. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to start a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You need to be pronounced not guilty. If you're, if you're here today, if you've never said yes to Christ, please say yes to Jesus. Some of you might even be here and you say, you know, I am that person. I have used so many drugs. I do use drugs. I do use alcohol. If you don't do that or this, I mean, you'll, you'll be a baloney abuser then if you get rid of the drugs and the alcohol. You'll abuse something. It's the heart that needs to change. Jesus said you must be born again. And when you say yes to Christ the Spirit of God begins to indwell you and you start to change from the inside, not from the outside. The Pharisees were trying to change from the outside and maintain holiness from the outside and condemning everybody else and telling them they needed to maintain holiness from the outside. And self-help groups and all these things have so many lists of rules that you have to follow. Not all of them are bad, but they don't do the complete job that Jesus does. So you must be born again. Secondly, by choosing to walk according to and in agreement with God's Spirit within us, God promises to conform us into the image of Christ. We're changed from the inside. You may have even developed a a tradition, guys, Uh, because you're desperate to change yourself. You might even have some traditions that are rooted in, in like, you know, I need a change in my life, and I have to be really diligent about these things, and I need to be careful about this and that. And that's fantastic if you know what you need to be careful about. That's fantastic. But don't become a Pharisee by condemning others who don't believe the same as you. That's the problem. So often we major in the minors and we minor in the majors. It's about knowing Christ and making Him known. It's about knowing Jesus. We're going to close here in a song, and just with with a song in just a few minutes. And we're going to, you know, kind of dim the lights a little bit, and we're just going to allow you to come and receive prayer if you want. There's going to be people in the back. I've been informed that some people don't like coming to the front. We do not have a tradition of that you have to come to the front. God will meet you in the back too, <laughs> or He'll meet you out by the donut table. <laughs> He'll meet you anywhere as long as your heart is sincere. But ask him to search you out. Lord, am I a religionist? Am I a legalist? Am I a traditionalist? Why do I do the things that I do? You could twist the scriptures in enough to where you think it's a holy thing to keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket. Somebody will probably do it. We need to ask the Lord to search us out, Right? And if you're a religionist or a legalist or traditionalist, you have a blind spot, and only God can open your eyes to those things. Only He can. So maybe as we close, maybe a good prayer is, Lord, search my heart know my ways. Lead me in the ways everlasting, God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, search me out. I'm here. Just, I'm, I'm just before you, God. I'm just here. I'm singing. I'm, I'm just here before you, Lord. Show me. Show me this next week, Lord. Is there anything that I'm being a traditionalist about? Am I starting to condemn people because they don't buy into my style of Christianity? And the second thing, of course, if you've never said yes to Christ, come say yes to Jesus. Are there any questions today? I'm a firm believer in coming to God and church as you are. There are plenty of times I have come unwillingly, but you still came. There's a lot of things I do unwillingly, but I still do them and I'm never sorry. Good things, I mean. There are plenty of times I have come unwillingly, full of sin and unclean, and when I show up, I leave with a different attitude. Amen. That's what the psalmist said. I almost lost hope until I went into the house of God. We come here to get realigned. We come here to get recalibrated with the things of God. The world is screaming at us seven days a week. We come here to get recalibrated. That's why we read our Bibles, to get recalibrated. This is what's true. Not the talk show host and all this other. This is what's true. So good for you, whoever wrote this. I feel like this contradicts what you were saying. What are your thoughts? I don't know how it contradicts. I think you're right on. I come and preach sometimes and I don't want to. (laughs) go to prayer meetings and I don't want to but I know that I should I've never regretted going to a prayer meeting sometimes I think hmm, how could I get out of this I could fake a migraine or I could do <laughs> hey you're laughing because you do the same thing <laughs> but then I go no I need to go pray Lord you want us to pray I'm going to go pray and I go pray and I'm like I'm so glad I went Following Jesus isn't about being happy all the time. And it's not being all emotionally and excited. It's about having a firm commitment. This is, how, this is how God wants me to live. And I'm going to do it when I feel like it. And I'm going to do it when I don't feel like it. But I'm going to obey the Lord. And I'm going to seek his glory. So uh, if I somehow uh, painted a different kind of picture, I agree with all of that that was up there. I agree with all of that. I'm always glad that I come to church. I'm always, glad that, I'm always glad that I read my Bible. I'm always glad that I pray. I'm always glad that I forgive. I'm always glad uh, that I serve. I'm always glad. And it's hard sometimes, but I don't regret it when it's done because I know that's what the Lord wanted.